0: Welcome to the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian and his particular friend, Mike. And between the two of us, we are rereading our favourite novels, the Aubrey maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. We are making our way once again, Mike, through Clarissa Oaks, or as some people call it, the true love. Catch us up then. Would you mind telling us where we got to last time? Could you help us anticipate what's coming this week? Oh, be delighted to do so, Ian. Last week
1: in Chapter 6, Stephen signed on to Jack's mission to help Queen Pualani defeat the Northern Chiefs, Jean Dutour, and the French-American privateer, the Franklin. Clarissa told Stephen that she'd been sexually abused by her guardian throughout her childhood and adolescence and then sent to work at a London brothel after his death. As a result, intercourse now means nothing to her. Because the brothel's customers included Ledward and Ray, Clarissa gave Stephen information to identify their protector, the French spy that's high in the British ministry and is bedeviling Sir Joseph Blaine and Stephen all this time. Now, this time in chapter 7, an excited Stephen writes to Sir Joseph Blaine, Reverend Martin confesses, We learn more about Mrs. Oaks, her attitude towards men, and her effect on some of the surprises, officers and crew, and the result of that effect. Mm -hmm. And an unpleased, indignant Jack tilts church towards fire and brimstone, and there's a dinner. We always love dinners.
0: Uh, we love a dinner. It wouldn't be Patrick O'Brien. We, would, we wouldn't we would be having one of those kind of character and story exposition type chapters if there wasn't a dinner. And that's exactly what we've got here. Um, we were beginning to hint in the last chapter there about the identity of this possible highly placed person in the, in the British hierarchy that Clarissa might have information about connected to Ledwood and Ray. And to help us get back in tune with all that. Stephen spends the opening few paragraphs of this chapter helpfully doing a bit of catch-up exposition for us. And we get reminded that for many years, Stephen and Sir Joseph Blaine, his spymaster, and British naval intelligence generally have been foiled by highly placed officials in the English civil service working for Napoleon. The information from these spies had led to the loss of Royal Navy ships, had led to the loss of battles, whose success would have depended on surprise in the first place, had led to lost convoys and merchantmen, and had led to the deaths of a number of British intelligence agents. And we get reminded in a call that goes way back to the surgeon's mate that Stephen had learned about two of them, about the identities of Ledwood and Ray, from a disenchanted French intelligence officer, Duhamel remember him? Now Stephen, as we remember just a couple of books ago, shot and dissected them in Pulo Probine. Oh yes, we remember. But their protector, identity as yet unknown, is still at large, is still supplying France with dangerous intelligence, and is still unknown. And as we join Stephen here at the beginning of the chapter, he's writing to Sir Joseph about this man's possible identity. And Mike, there are a few important breadcrumbs here that are being laid that might lead us to who this person is.
1: There really are, Ian, and, and, and Stephen's so excited. He's saying, you know, that this million to one chance has come to pass, and he asked Sir Joseph to think about a man who's a duke, well at court, has the garter, a lame leg, and as he says, curious ways. So uh, mm-hmm. you, you didn't see my air quotes there, you know, <laughs> lovely listeners, but. Killick reminds Stephen that all hands has been called, and Stephen's like, you know, he's so concentrated on this writing that he begs to be excused and continues on. Stephen says that before this man was a duke and had become attached to the ministry, had become a privy counselor and had the garter, he saw this man in Holland House. Mm. Now, Stephen pauses as Sarah and Emily come in to show off their new frocks before going to dine with the King of the Friendly Islands. And after making Emily spit out her tobacco wad, he sends them off with Mister Martin here. Ah, oh, kids! Uh,
0: everybody's had this problem. Who, who, which of us hasn't had to get their eight-year-old kid to spit out her tobacco wad? Oh,
1: right, right, right. <laughs> Actually, you know, in 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 my adolescence in eastern North Carolina, that that was a problem from time to time, but not typically, oh. right. <laughs> So the Privy Council, Ian, I'm thinking of, you know, Game of Thrones and The Hand and a few people sitting around a table, but that's not the Privy Council per se, is it?
0: Well, well, it, it kind of is. And it, it's interesting to talk about for two reasons. First of all, because it's another signal of how this person is established at the very heart of the british establishment the privy council is an institution dating back many many centuries to before the time when we were a democracy and it's basically the the king's chamber in which he gathers together or the monarch's chamber in which they gather together all their ministers and the privy council still exists as the more or less formal more or less ceremonial regular committee if you like in which the queen as it was until a few months ago the king as it is now sits and catches up or in this in most cases stands and catches up with current members of the government. So if you are a senior member of the government, then you're a member of the Privy Council. And you don't stop Mm -hmm. being a member of the Privy Council. So this this organization still exists until today. One of the signals that you get of Privy Councillorship is that any senior member of the House of Commons, of either party who has ever served in a a high-ranking government role, and it has been a Privy Councillor, is known as the Right Honourable. So if you hear this thing in the House of Commons, somebody's referred to as Right Honourable, that means they're a former Privy Councillor. So the actual real everyday Privy Council is the the, the monarch and basically some members of the cabinet. The total Privy Council is everybody who's ever been one of those. And if any of you are watching the TV coverage of the accession of King Charles III, the, the day after his mother's passing, a special meeting of the Privy Council was called. And all of those ex-prime ministers and ex-cabinet ministers and ex-bishops and lords and stuff were all crammed into one room. That wasn't even the whole Privy Council. They they drew lots to figure out which of them was going to get to be present as the Privy Council met and did this ceremonial agreeing that the Queen had indeed passed away and that Charles was indeed the the sovereign and would inherit. So it's an institution that's still there. Uh, It's an institution that's quite often unseen. It's not necessarily secretive, but it's kind of unseen and it's another signal that whoever this duke is, he's right at the heart of decision-making and the establishment
1: in uh, in Britain. Wow. Wow. I love that.
0: Yeah. And we might come back to Holland House. I think there's going to be an interesting connection to pick up there. But meanwhile, Mike, as as Stephen is handling this correspondence with Sir Joseph, he's he's begged off from the idea of attending uh, up on deck. He hears Jack addressing the crew and addressing the Liberty men who are going ashore. And and Jack is in stern mode here. He's telling them that the ship is going to weigh on the first of the ebb because, as Jack would say, there's not a moment to lose. He gives them the signal when they see the first rocket tonight, they need to get ready to repair to the boats that are going to return to the ship. And at the second rocket, that's when the boats are going to pull off from the Strand. So they need to be there or get left behind. There are going to be no women aboard, he says. And this is a an imprecation that I think bites him in the backside here, because the butcher, who's still drunk from his own liberty ashore the night before, calls out, what about Mrs. Oakes? And lots of people kind of sidle away from this guy and look sidelong at him, because he's clearly blotted his copy book. And Jack has his name taken, and it's very telling that Jack is forced to turn to Lieutenant West to take that man's name, because West and Davage are part of this great division among the crew and this open descent in the crew is an, an, an outward sign, Mike, of the kind of fractured relationships in the crew that we've talked about indirectly in the previous chapters, but we're just starting to see coming uh, to visibility right now.
1: Yeah, and that that butchered featured so prominently last week with the whole brouhaha over the pigs. Yeah, <laughs> so, he's the, man oh, with he's the really, mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The hogs, exactly right. Well, continuing his letter... Stephen says that he saw this man at Holland House during the peace. And Stephen says that, you know, when he saw this guy, he had just walked through the door, his face shining as though he had been granted the beatific vision. Uh, He was returning from a meeting at the French embassy. As this man entered the place, Lady Holland was saying how she worships Napoleon and asking how this man's dinner, as she said, with the divine first council went uh, Stephen now knows that this man was part of Ledward and Ray's dirtiest parties, as he says, and even though the man had gone to school with Ledward, he never acknowledged Ledward or Ray in public. And Stephen says he's absolutely convinced this is the man because they kept finding a name for this man in Ray's code books that they had you know they had acquired when they tried to arrest Ledward and Ray, and that name was Pillywinks. So, some very interesting things here: Pillywinks, Holland House. These people here—you know, Lady Holland, yeah. uh, Ian. Any, any? You know, what, what are these things?
0: Well, Holland House, we can presume would—it it seems pretty clear—is a reference to Lord Holland, as he was then, Henry Vassal Fox, Third Baron Holland, who was a real character in government at the time. He was a radical Whig, so uh, opposed to the Tories like our Jack. Uh, a radical kind of uh, modernizer and reformer, a bit like his uncle Charles James Fox, who you might also have heard of. Lord Holland served as Lord Privy Seal between 1806 and 1807. And Mike, we were just talking about the Privy Council. Lord, Lord Privy Seal is a member of Privy Council who is attached to the kind of the, the 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 running and the business and the liaison associated with the House of Lords. Wow. Now, in the House of Lords, then, this guy Holland had led the opposition to the Regency Bill in 1811. Uh, He had attacked the orders in council and other measures that the government had taken to counteract Napoleon's Berlin decrees. So this guy, Holland, was clearly somebody who was interested in shaking things up and maybe even shaking things up in a way that wasn't totally opposed to Napoleon. He had denounced the Treaty of 1813 with Sweden that bound Britain to consent to the forcible union of Norway. He had resisted the bill in 1816 that was set to confine Napoleon in St. Helena, which is a little bit ahead of our timeline, but that's where right. we you, I'm sure you all know that's where we're headed with Napoleon. He had met his wife, Lady Elizabeth Vasselfox, in 1797, after the two of them had conducted a scandalous affair for several years. So this is a fairly racy character and a bit of an iconoclast. She, Elizabeth Vasselfox, had divorced her first husband just days before her wedding to Lord Holland. And uh, we certainly get from from real host historical references here that Lady Holland and her husband were great admirers of Bonaparte. They'd met him in Paris in 1802 and she had corresponded with Napoleon until his death. So even though it's it's odd to hear this story of a, a British aristocratic lady saying, oh, she admired the divine first consul, it, it represents a, a real situation and a real character. Now, that's Holland House and the connection to the establishment. I've, I've never heard the word pillywinks in connection to the establishment of anything, Mike, what what can we find out about that?
1: Well, fascinating. You know, I chase this thing down, and pillywinks is another name for a thumbscrew torture device, wow. which is yeah. And I'm kind of thinking, is this their kind of SM parties that they went to, yeah. and this guy was like proficient with the thumbscrew torture device? No idea, you know what this is here, but. For whatever reason, Stephen's going, oh, yeah, pillywinks this is your guy here. Now, Anthony Gary Brown in the Patrick O'Brien Muster book reminds us that in Post Captain, Stephen sees a man with a blue ribbon in his visiting Diana's box at a, at a concert or opera. And Stephen refers to him as the Duke of Hell. So, you know, we don't know if this is the same Duke that we're talking about here. But this guy did have a garter ribbon. You know, he's going, you know, he steps into Diana's box. You know, he's one of the many visitors to Diana's box, but then Stephen like takes no notice of him after that. Now, on Pilly Winks, Google Ngram, always our favorite tool to say, you know, is this a word Patrick O'Brien's using that's right on? There are zero Pilly Winks hits at any time. So, wow, <laughs> clearly not a word used often and used to refer to this torture device. Go fix it.
0: It's got this very kind of delicious colour to it if it really refers to a thumbscrew, which is horrible. And it sounds like a harmless kind of parlour game thing. It's a really oh, sort of skin-crawling association here.
1: Well, it, it actually
0: does show up
1: in, you know, it actually in English Privy Council notes at one mm-hmm. point where they're going, oh, we have found this new engine, this machine, you know, and it, the Pilly Winks, which is a thumbscrew. And now... For really bad prisoners, you know, we want to use both, you know, whatever their previous torture device was, and this one. So, oh my you know, gosh. it's fascinating that you know. Again, it's another privy council reference here, in a way.
0: Yeah, and and all of this, if I can stretch it even further, takes us back to uh, Post Captain and Stephen Maturin captured by the French and being tortured. Yeah. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if with a with a thumbscrew, but certainly tortured in a way that injured his hands.
1: Well, we do. And that uh, that was my first thought as well in remembering yeah. Stephen, like, you know, what was, did this guy, was he involved in Stephen's finger and hand right. torture? I don't know. So yeah, we, we don't know. Fascinating.
0: Yeah, great stuff. Well, we get a little bit more then about Clarissa herself. And my, I, I've noticed, and we've talked about this, that there, there's been very little discussion of what actually became of Clarissa, partly because she, in, in her character, doesn't like to talk about it, and partly because it hasn't been used to give us any signal about her backstory. We haven't had any information about what kind of person she is, whether the fact that she was transported to Australia was, was a, a real terrible injustice or whether she'd been some kind of, I don't know, some kind of political operative. But we get a little bit of a clue now. Stephen, in this correspondence with Sir Joseph Blaine, says that she's the woman who blew Mr. Cayley's head off with a double-barreled gun. And Harry Essex, a member of Black's Club, had had her sentence commuted to transportation. I guess commuted, having from execution down to transportation. Yeah, exactly. Now we do know. Then we get an idea of why Clarissa might have taken offence when Stephen asked her if she knew how to handle a gun in the previous chapter, and a little bit more about the violence in her past. And she's mentioned that she has violence in her past. So we're starting to get this peeled away and revealed to us a little bit here, and Stephen carrying on with his letter to Blaine, he's telling Blaine how he knows Clarissa and tries to recount specifically what she'd said about Ledwood. He's trying to build up the case, I think. First of all, that there's valid new information about the conspiracy behind Ledwood and Ray. And I think looking a couple of paragraphs ahead, he's also trying to build up the case for Clarissa as a valuable informant, as a valuable asset that, that Blaine might uh, take care of. He's trying to portray how she had said it in, in a way that showed that she was innocent and unsuspecting, and trying to portray her as sympathetic, I think, to, to Joseph Blaine. As he's working to recall the details, his glance goes outside of the ship once again, this time not to up on deck, but to over on shore. He's watching the festivities taking place on shore through the stern window. He can see everybody drinking carver, this brewed drink that the islanders are drinking. He's watching dancing entertainment. He watches two fine women, and incongruously to, to Western eyes, these two fine women are in a boxing match, the match gets stopped by the chief before there was a clear winner, and there then then turns out to be a boxing match between uh, Bonden and Awkward Davies, competing against some locals. So it's a it's a it's a pretty full on party that's going on ashore here, Mike. Right,
1: right. Well, Stephen just keeps writing and writing, trying to capture all this detail. You know, I I think he's like you say. He, He's trying to get it exactly right so that Blaine will be as convinced as Steven was that this is, is is absolutely true. You know, and his watch chimes and he realizes, oh my gosh, he looks at this stack of writing and says, you know, I'm never gonna get all this encoded in time to send it with the daisy in the morning. And he's thinking that his, as he calls them, his poor boiled eyes are already dropping out of his head. And as he's thinking this, the rockets go off. And the crew returns to the ship and he's like, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm so out of time. And Jack stops by and Steven says, you know, well, I'm, I'm copying, you know, I'll, I'll be right in to see you. And, you know, he learns from Jack that the dinner was great. Uh, Bondin and Davies are going to need him to attend to his injuries in you know, first thing in the morning. And then Emily had vomited after learning about how the kava she'd been drinking all night was made Stephen says well <laughs> she's you know she's more informed than I am I don't know how that's made and and Jack says well the natives sit around all day and chew these kava roots and as they chew them they turn to juice they spit them into this big container and then that container of all the native spit is fermented and drunk and i I couldn't help but think of of Emily, you know, thinking about spitting out all her tobacco juice uh, yeah. uh, you know, off the ship and then being made to drink this back again. So now he did say she'd had a lot of sugar cane. She was already a little green ahead of time. Uh, but you know, this, this drove her over the edge. Now, Jack says, OK, I'm going to go run, write a quick letter to Sophie before Wainwright leaves. Anything you want to tell Sophie seems to say, you know, give her my love. Oh my gosh, I hope I hope I have time to pen a short note to Diana after I finish my encoding and copying here. Yeah,
0: and he's now just about ready then to wrap up this letter to Sir Joseph. He finishes encoding it. This is what's been boiling his eyes, this really laborious writing out and double encoding. He ends with a request, a request that Sir Joseph might keep Clarissa safe from the law if Stephen can get her back to England. And th- th- this is where we we saw this pointing a couple of paragraphs ago. He's really trying to set this up as a situation where Clarissa can be taken into the protection in some way of Sir Joseph Blaine. Obviously, as a, as a condemned and transported person, she can't just step back on shore and go, well, here I am again, folks. Right. The pitch I think that Stephen's making is that she's a source of valuable information, And he confesses in the letter as well that there's something personal here. He says, in any event, I have a great kindness for her. Immunity would be politically sound, privately obliging. Mm -hmm. And he also asks Sir Joseph to pass on uh, an enclosed note that's uh, headed for Diana. And Adams stops by to collect the letters and he says that Wainwright and his men are departing for the Daisy, So now is the time for the mail to go. And this idea of Clarissa being a vector for information and that immunity for her might be valuable. Well, Patrick O'Brien readers have all got a huge stack of pins to stick into things. Stick a big old pin in that one. And we might come back to it in about a book and a half. We'll see.
1: Wow. Wow. Well done. Well done, Ian. Well, you know, Stephen accompanies Adam's up on deck and when they get there, they hear a very unpleased Jack roaring at the man um, and, and Adams and Stephen kind of look at each other startled. They've never heard so many loud, angry, severe orders, particularly, you know, unmooring the ship and unmooring this surprise. You know, that just, you don't hear that. And as they get out to sea, having just barely weathered the outer spur of the reef, Jack increases sail dramatically and goes below, leaving, O'Brien writes, a nervous silence behind him. Jack eats his breakfast. He's muttering, you know, constantly about the infernal lovers as Stephen in the sick birth listens to Martin lie badly about why he had deserted Stephen for Dr. Falconer on their visit to the island. Stephen uh, thinks, as O'Brien writes, was not much opposed to falsehood in itself, nor offended by its skillful use. But one of Martin's most amiable characteristics had been an ingenuous candor. So mm. Stephen misses that Martin's not being honest with him and is lying so badly. And in the meantime, some of the patients and patient visitors, Joe Place is talking to Bondon and Davis, and he's telling them that he hasn't seen the captains, both Jack and Tom, so vexed in years. And Archer says it was caused by the ill will between the Oak Apples, as he says, the followers of Mr. Oaks, and you know, some of the rest of the crew here. And he wouldn't be surprised to see the entire ship's company flogged on Monday, including the bosun flogging his own mate.
0: Boy, mm. Now,
1: this, this, this would be, I think, an absolute first for the surprise. I don't think we've, you know, Jack's never been a flogging captain.
0: No, but it's, it's a really... Telling measure of just how far you know, discipline and goodwill is breaking down, not only between the officers and the crew, but between the different factions in the crew as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's the first time we've heard the O'Capels being called out as a as a as a faction. Martin realizes now that he's in a in a tricky place here. He can't justify his actions to Stephen, and I think he's beginning to be aware that he's been uh more than a bit evasive and more than a bit false in the way he's accounted of himself to Stephen. So. He starts talking about all the oaths that he heard on deck that morning, the, the thunder from the captain yelling and shouting, the captain thinking that these poorly executed manoeuvres might cause them to miss their tide. And then in this very odd side note from Martin, he says, I, he starts to criticise the captain and says, I'm very surprised that uh, you know, somebody of his experience would have, would have gone about it this way. And this is not something that Stephen wants to countenance. He cuts him off straight away and asks for Quicksilver, asks for Mercury. And Martin notices this and says, well, I'm sorry. I hope I didn't offend you. And Stephen gives this very neutral but telling put down. He says, as far as I am concerned, Captain Aubrey is wholly infallible in the conduct of a ship. Pause. Pray, tell me about your walk with Dr. Falconer. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And Stephen's just very firmly but calmly putting a stopper on the end of that and saying, okay, let's change the subject now. There's there's an even more interesting thing for us to follow there. Here, isn't there, Mike? Quicksilver. The doctor says it's the best physic for syphilis, for the pox. And he says he'll be needing it shortly for a patient. And actually, we're going to learn that Jack is going to describe in a letter back to Sophie that Stephen is seeing Clarissa now. So by the time you put these breadcrumbs together, they're very, very subtly laid there. It's clear that Clarissa is the person with syphilis. And Clarissa is the person that Stephen's about to be treating. With Quicksilver, and all is still not well between Stephen and Nathaniel Martin.
1: No, no. Although Martin finally starts to come clean here a little yeah. bit, and and I think is helping his cause a little bit, he describes his you know mostly unsuccessful outing with Falconer. Falconer very early on had twisted an ankle, broken his spyglass. They couldn't go forward. They couldn't go back. They really saw no birds of note. And they discovered that although they brought all kinds of collecting equipment, they had completely forgotten to bring any food or drink. So they're out in the hot sun, no food or drink, Falconer can't walk. And, you know, he asked Martin to go retrieve some coconuts for them to get at least a drink there. And Martin was unable to do it. So, you know, pretty much as Martin describes it, it's mostly a day long discussion or, or really a lecture from Falconer about volcanoes, although Martin did find some of it. Interesting, you know, he talked about the possible relationship between volcanoes' eruptions and the great waves that devastate the shores. Ah, well, Falconer, a little bit man of ahead of his time, or or maybe right on his time, and how the Polynesians see the volcanoes as visible gods and sacrifice to them, as the text says, in the hope of evading the usual fate of the poor and lowly born whose souls are slowly eaten by the evil spirits who dwell inside the craters. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, this these volcanoes may come in a little bit to play later. Indeed.
0: Take out another of your silver-plated pins, dear reader, and stick one in there. Right. Meanwhile, Stephen still has a bit of recovering to do. Thankfully for him, Jack has got some coffee saved for him in the cabins, noting how red Stephen's eyes are. Calls for Killick to put on yet another pot of coffee. And Stephen notes very disingenuously, like he always does, that the ship is now actually moving quite fast. And Jack describes himself and his mood quite accurately. He says, I was so hellfire hipped by the crew's actions in the channel that I wanted to get fresh air quickly. And this is him describing all this shouting and uproar and upheaval that Martin and Stephen had been noticing up on deck. Jack believes that their speed is going to increase still more when the breeze comes abaft the beam, and as often happens when Jack predicts something, it comes true. Jack completes his usual fore and aft walk on the quarter deck, and asks Tom Pullings for a word in the cabin. And, and Mike, now we're starting to dig into it a little bit. Now Jack is going further to try and find out what's really going on with the gunroom and the crew. Tom. Invites Jack to come eat in the gunroom the next day. And Jack says, I must decline, but it's no fling at you. And he has really unburdens himself to Tom Pullings here. He says, The ship is falling to pieces because of the ill will in the gunroom. And his idea for remedying it is to make Oakes an acting lieutenant. And we get this very unusual, insubordinate outburst from Tom Pullings. Oh, no, sir. Followed by a big blush from Tom Pullings. And Jack says that the promotion might make the, the gross incivility that he's come across in the gunroom uh, less easy, might prevent the officers from riding Oaks and angering the hands in Oaks's division. After all, he says, Oaks is a tolerable seaman. He can stand a watch and making him an independent member of the gunroom like that might actually be good. And Pullings is very embarrassed and doesn't really know how to say what's on his mind here. He says, I don't want to carry tails. I don't want to inform. But... This promotion would mean that Missus Oakes would mess with the gunroom, and his description of it is quite telling. He says some of the officers are sweet on her, mm-hmm. and this is this is a, a a great understatement, I think. Jack says, "Of course they are, since she's so amiable. You know, she's such a charming character. Why would they not be sweet on her?" And Tom says, "No, sir. I mean serious, bloody serious, cut your throat serious, fucking serious." And Jack is really taken aback, I think, partly by the, the, this description and these words, and also that it's coming from Tom Pullings. And uh, in a, in another little bit of an understatement here, he invites Tom to row back a little bit and says, surely you don't mean that last word literally, and Tom says no, but I think Mike, Mike, you and I and every other reader are pretty sure that the real answer is, oh yes, that's exactly what kind of serious they are.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Jack tells Tom he's certain that Mrs. Oakes never encouraged them but he thanks Tom for letting him know. And then he turns to the crews, shameful bungling that morning. And, you know, he says, you know, I'm going to handle the officers, but I, but I need you, Tom, to bring me a list of the hands that need to be dealt with for neglect of duty. He says, you know, the ship absolutely has to be pulled together before we get to Mawahu, or we're not going to be able to go into action. Uh, now, he... You know, I think he turns around and instead of saying, "You know, I'm, I'm going to accept the gunroom's invitation," can't do that. He invites Tom to dine with him, with him, Stephen, and perhaps Martin and the Oaks's, You know, the next day, Sunday, and he asks Tom to let Davidge and Wes know that he would like to see them now in the cabin.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So here we go. I'm I'm really glad of this. I'm looking forward to this paragraph, not because it resolves anything greatly, but I'm just glad that Jack is getting a hold of this and that these people are having their, their behavior called out here. Jack had left the unmooring of the ship to West and Davidge on that morning whilst he and Tom had been meeting with Wen right below. And again, Mike, we're getting this described in secondhand kind of reported speech after the event. This is the hullabaloo that Martin and uh, Stephen Maturin had both noticed. He'd come on deck to find an everyday maneuver, the unmooring shockingly bungled. West and Davidge had expected to be called in, but they didn't expect the cold fury and the far-reaching observations that followed from Jack. And we get a little lesson in tough and directive leadership here from our leadership guru, Jack Aubrey. He says he's talking to them now about their public life, the, the life that they conduct between them that's very visible to the rest of the ship's company. And he talks about how gunroom disagreements become public even when we try to keep them under hatches because they end up turning divisions against each other. They, however, had never tried really hard to keep things under hatches. They were blatantly rude to each other in public, even after Jack had openly checked them for this lack of civility. And he goes on and says that their behavior had resulted in the disgraceful exhibition that he'd seen at the unmooring while, in Jack's words, they had wrangled like a couple of fish fags, which is, a, I think that's a Whitby phrase, actually, for women selling fish. Anyhow, they had wrangled in this way in front of Wainwright and his people, you know, people from outside the Royal Navy. They had disgraced the ship at Oakes's wedding dinner, showing no respect at all for their guests. And as a result, he goes on to say that he, Captain Aubrey, had just declined the invitation from Pullings to dine in the gunroom tomorrow. And he says, from now on, you're going to keep up public officer-like appearances with each other at all times. And he says to them that if they fail to do so, he will supersede them with two of the master mariners from before the mast. And he'll include it in his report on them to the Admiralty. And it's pretty clear, Mike, that's going to be career ending for both of these characters here. Yeah, you can you can just see Jack, you know, he's
1: thinking, you know, Wainwright and his people were there. What if it was a kingship that had been watching this? You know, what is Royalty? Man, what if we were in the middle of action and the crew's doing this because of these divisions, you know, and yeah. and he's he's so indignant now. I think he is just, you know, it's like, you know, you've disgraced yourselves, you've disgraced the ship. And, you know, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. He had, he had told Tom earlier, you know, that he's, as the husband, is the last to know, you know, meaning yeah. that he's the husband of the bride surprise. So, yeah, yeah, you have really, really embarrassed me and my wife here. He's not having it. Well... I tell you what, I, I think Weston Davidge ought to take that to heart. They ought to spend a little bit of time thinking about their behavior, as my parents used to tell me, <laughs> you need to go <laughs> think about this. Uh, but we need to take a little pause, get a little refreshment, and then come back and see where we go with all of this. Absolutely.
0: We'll be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovershole. Welcome back. I hope you've had a chance to reflect on how things are going in your own personal gun room. I hope everything's okay there. Still clearly all to seek, I think, aboard the surprise. We get yet more secondhand reporting of this as Jack sits down to write to Sophie about what he's learned, about what he's heard from Tom Pullings, about how West and Davidge hate each other because of Mrs. Oakes and how adding Mrs. Oaks to the gunroom could cause their rivalry to break bounds. And Jack is having to describe this having only a few letters ago, I think pretty much praised up Mrs. Oakes as a as a benign and tolerable character. He's having to report that the effect that she has is really pretty different. He's very sorry, he says, that such a modest, well-conducted woman could be so persecuted. And he laments that um, she's confined to messing in the dismal, solitary midshipman's berth, which I think is you know, n- not a great experience for somebody who's meant to be the wife of one of the, uh, of the officers aboard the ship. In fact, he says, reporting what had happened in the gunroom a, a few chapters ago, she mrs oakes had in fact been the one who'd courageously kept the conversation going at the gun rooms, as the gunrooms guest when the hosts as he said were mute as fishes and he goes on to say how he admires courage in a woman he had been wrong about stephen being too fond of her he says they had gone on a long walk together and come back pleased and affectionate with flowers and with stephen's birds and beetles and again mike i'm looking over Jack's shoulder here thinking, I'm not sure Sophie's going to be convinced that this is all now wholesome and platonic. But anyhow, he goes on and says that he's thinking about inviting the Oakses to dine with him tomorrow if he can overcome his anger at the chicks' company, even though, he says, Oaks as a person, as a companion at dinner, is a shocking drag. He's going to ask Stephen, who's examining Mrs. Oaks at the moment. And that's, Mike, is that breadcrumb that we were talking about that says, yeah. Yeah, yeah Mrs. Oaks is the one who's being... Examine that potentially treated with with quicksilver for for syphilis here, and yeah, I'm not sure whether either Sophie or Diana would be delighted with the subtext of what's going down in this letter here.
1: No, no, I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, oh boy, it, it's fascinating watching what Stephen's writing home, what Jack's writing home. Going, boy, you guys are creating quite the storm when you get back. Oh pop. yeah, I know. I wouldn't be saying this. Well, you know, we're we're now it's Sunday morning. And and Jack, you know, we're told, despite all the satisfying music he played with Stephen Saturday night, the night before, he wakes up Sunday and the ship's humiliation in front of Wainwright is still on his mind. And he notes that the ship is now ghosting along. It was, you know, it was running so yeah. fast before. And he had mentally noted, even while sleeping, that the wind had dropped. Uh, and so he checks the log board. He says, good morning to Davidge, very civilly ask if any sharks have been sighted and david says no oak says well you know wait let me let me check under here you know sometimes we have some messmates below yeah. you know and i thought okay that's a really nice thing on oak's behalf he says nope no sharks and and jack dives in the water now he really swims out hard his fury starts to dissipate a little bit he's out half a mile he turns to come back and you know, he's swimming back hard, looks up and sees Mrs. Oaks looking out over the taffrail and thinks, "Oh my gosh, she might just see a naked man here. So he holds his breath and dives underwater, swimming as hard and fast as he can to keep from being seen. Um, he doesn't realize that it would have been okay anyways. Oaks is running very quickly to shield his <laughs> wife's eyes. Killick, you know, having spotted Jack, is running with a towel for him to cover his person. And Jack's mood, is kind of also reflected as, as O'Brien sums up Killick's actions. He says, Killick, seeing his captain's approach from afar, had also timed his first breakfast with particular care, you know, in addition to timing the bringing of this towel. It says, rather as a keeper obliged to live in the same cage with a testy, omnipotent lion, might time his goblets of horse flesh to the very first stroke of the zoological bell um, boy, boy i think you know jack is absolutely a watch mainspring being tightened and tightened with his indignation and it's not the last time we'll hear jack you know referred to as lion like in his countenance right now
0: no and it's a reminder that clerk is a bit on the, on his back foot here his his status has been lower for quite a few chapters now he's really you know not hasn't quite got the moral advantage over everybody, and in particular over Jack and Stephen that he had in the past. So he's looking after the lion, but he's still just the, the person who cleans up the cages afterwards. <laughs> Anyhow, Stephen's in the lion's cage. He's joining Jack for breakfast and they're up early. Uh, he's going to look at the specimens that he gathered on the friendly islands when he was ashore there with Clarissa. And Jack tells Stephen that he'd almost offered Mrs. Oaks a dreadful spectacle, the spectacle of a naked man, a naked Jack Aubrey, Had she turned his way, and Stephen, I think, poo-poo's this a little bit. He says, "Oh, that would have been very shocking." Pray, he says, "Pass the breadfruit toast." And once again, Stephen's in a very kind of quiet, controlling mood. He shuts down a line of conversation and rapidly changes the subject. He likes undercutting people in this way, doesn't he? He's good. He's good at using conversation like that. Stephen is remembering that Missus Oaks had already seen Jack naked, looking through a scuttle while he was examining her, and he remembers her detached interest, that she'd noticed all of Jack's wounds on his torso there. And that had been the first time that Stephen had noticed something unusual in Clarissa's attitude toward men, this very clinical, detached attitude that had disconcerted him at the beginning. He hadn't seen any irregularity in her in her outlook or her behaviour before then. Jack, at this point, breaks into Stephen's thoughts and says, speaking of Mrs. Oakes, it is long since I heard her howling on Martin's viola, or Martin himself, for that matter. And Stephen passes on a little bit of gossip. He says, I believe that I heard Martin say that the neck or the head of the viola was out of order, and once again changes the conversation to ask why there's so few viola players compared to fiddle players. And there's an ex- existential question for string players because the viola players are the butt of all the jokes. But viola players are always going to get a gig. If you're a viola player, you can get you can get signed in anywhere. Anyhow, Tom comes in, breaks into this, Nice little conversation about musicality, and asks Jack if he wants to rig church. Jack says yes. Uh, this is an opportunity not for reflection and pastorality. This is an opportunity for bringing order to the ship. He wants the penitential sh- psalms and the articles. And exactly what might he mean here, Mike, by the penitential psalms? Yeah, the penitential psalms are the
1: ones that are you know absolutely major on you know we've sinned. We're really mm. sorry that we've sinned, and we' you know we're kind of asking for forgiveness here, so you know you know low be us here and i I think it's just the effect Jack wants for this service It's like I want you guys to be completely aware of uh you know how badly you've done and and part of the reason behind the penitential psalms are. We we realize that it you know it's not good to be outside of God's favor at least you know as as yeah. we kind of look backwards Old Testament wise you know all, the Psalms being part of that Old Testament here wow you know now before church there's division so you know we're going to have this inspection Jack's going to you know look every man in the eye all around the ship and you know it's a great time O'Brien tells us to take the ship's company's pulse and for each of the ship members to gauge the captain's state of mind and and we know a little bit about both of them right now so this is a very interesting description here. Now, Jack notices all these expressionless faces on the very well-washed, well-shaven crew. So that tells him a lot. Usually there's you know just a little bit of chit-chat. This is not a Royal Navy vessel, but no, not today here. The crew, on the other hand, feels this gloom and dismay descending upon them after Jack looks at each one of them because Jack is still very angry and very resentful of all the unofficer like unsportsman like mishandling, swearing, shouting for you know what he thinks it was just a single order on more ship you know that the old surprise that's all you would have said, and everything would have gone you know completely in order and without another word here and this you know displeasure just emanates from him. he smiles only once in this entire journey around the ship. And that's when he sees Reed back for the first time since his accident. And also here's Reed, who's, you know, been a youngster. Now, you know, kind of a budding adolescent, we learn that Reed's voice is just starting to break into this croak as he's, you know, as he's talking to Jack in answer to Jack's questions.
0: Yeah. And he moves on to Oakes's division as he's on his tour of the ship. Oakes's division is normally the most cheerful. It has the kind of young, fit, irrepressible guys in it, but it's now the most disturbed part of the crew. Disturbed partly because of the guilt that accompanies their, the, the high perfection of cleanliness and Sunday dress gestures towards averting wrath, as the text says. But there's something else besides guilt that Jack can't define. He comes to Jemmy Ducks and the young girls and notices how much they've grown and thinks about how his own daughters might well be just as long in the leg as Emily and Sarah are now. And Jack is kind to them. But he notices that they, maybe sensing the crew's mood and thinking back to their own childhood, seem themselves more anxious than usual. And O'Brien gives us a bit of commentary on this. He explains, in their, meaning Emily and Sarah's, in their remote Melanesian small childhood, formal gatherings had sometimes ended in human sacrifice, a reasonable foundation for uneasiness.
1: Hmm. We'll get to the uh, the articles of war shortly. And I think there's kind of a version of that going on amongst the crew. And and Jack means to put it there <laughs> pretty yeah, clearly. But yeah, absolutely. In in the meantime, you know, Jack's inspecting the ship. Stephen and Martin are down in the sick berth waiting for their inspection. And and Martin confesses. He tells Stephen, you know, I really owe you a fuller explanation. He says, you know, the reason that I didn't go with you, that I went with Falconer is because for some time he's felt a growing inclination for Mrs. Oaks that would be criminal to indulge. So he just avoids her company. He says, even at the cost of falseness and incivility, you know, which he greatly regrets. So, you know, he's apologizing to Stephen. We've got, you know, the truth finally out here. Well, well yeah. done, Martin. Yeah, and absolutely. Stephen, as always, so gracious, says, never in life, my dear Martin. And, and adds, I, I love this, you know, I, 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 it's better to flee than to burn. I, I probably yeah. should have carried that motto around <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in my youth here. Uh, besides, you know, he adds, uh, Martin adds, and I I think, you know, Stephen's kind of absolving him. Martin is still kind of carrying on with his confession and says, that's also the reason that I broke my viola. And so I think Stephen mm. actually, in the conversation earlier with Jack, may have been covering a little bit for Martin. He might be wondering, you know, I wonder why that is going on. Or or perhaps Martin had made some false comment to Stephen. But, you know, so, so he wants to avoid her so much, he breaks this precious instrument of his, you know, again, the fact that that Clarissa is having on these folks here. Now, he says, you know, Stephen adds not to worry because after all, he and Clarissa had a much more successful botanizing outing. You know, it's like, don't don't worry about that. You know, we we got a lot of great botanizing done. And and Martin thinking about the botanizing says that, oh, you know, I'm kind of reminded that at one point, you know, he's thinking, you know, we didn't do very good botanizing, but he, he hadn't said this yet. At one point, he and Falconer were sitting amongst a bunch of old rotting trees from from a hurricane that had gone past some time ago, which offered a great quantity of diverse beetles, and he hands Stephen a box and says, this this is my gift to you. I pray you'll accept it. So I think it's almost kind of a a sin offering, as as you will here, if we go back to that Old Testament again. And Stephen, looking into the box, cries, here's glory for you. And he tells Martin how grateful he is as he's thinking about, you know, talking about all these different kinds of beetles and how happy it will make Sir
0: Joseph. Ah, It's really nice. Between Stephen and Martin, and in a way between the two of them and Sir Joseph, there's been this disconnect. And the, yes. the, 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 the obligation and the connection between them is tentatively being built back up here. Jack Aubrey's been working hard on building um, authority for himself. And it's paying off, at least in the mind of Padine because I love this introduction that Pauline gives uh, when he interrupts this conversation is says, gentlemen, dear himself is upon us <laughs> himself being his, his very respectful word for captain Aubrey. And Stephen quickly tells Martin that the captain intends to invite him and the Oaks to dinner. And with this bit of forewarning, then Martin says, I'm going to be able to keep my countenance. That's to say, keep a, keep a calm facial expression for the space of a dinner at least. And this is a step ahead, you know, not that many hours or days ago, he was unwilling to share space in a boat with Clarissa. But now that he's confessed a little and rationalized a little, he thinks he can manage to keep his countenance for this little while. However, after Jack has been through the motions of inspecting the sick berth and inviting Martin, Martin begs to be excused in the end. He says he's not well, says that he won't be at the church either. He thanks Jack and lays out that he knows what this means. He says, a man must be uncommonly disordered to decline an invitation from both his patron and his commanding officer. So that's a pretty big confession. And it's a big reminder as well of just how bad this attachment to Clarissa Oakes has got for Martin and how he's now at least aware of it. In the Navy, he knows a refusal to accept an invitation like this is, as the text says, assumed to be a declaration of hostility very near neighbor to mutiny, if not high treason. But since Jack doesn't see Martin or indeed Stephen as truly maritime animals, Jack takes it pretty well on himself. He says that maybe it's something that you ate in Anamooka. Why don't you rest, he says, uh, and get advice on the more lowering psalms? And once again, Mike, we've got reference to how how contemplating the psalms might help us uh, with a bit of hubris here. We wonder then whether, just like the Psalms, there's a bit of fire and brimstone coming um, in the church service that Jack's about to preside over.
1: Yeah, I I think it's almost, you know, Jack's like, I you know, I want to take these really high-power Psalms and launch them at the crew. And then his last moment before he's going up to do that, he's saying to Martin, the you know, the rector, the reverend, you know, give me a little advice on how I use these. It (laughs) is pretty powerful stuff here. Well, Jack goes on. He continues the inspection. They go through the cable tier, as they usually do. And Jack recalls that this is where they found Mrs. Oaks originally. And he says, you know, she's now as much a part of the ship as the figurehead. And, and the text continues, Pullings, who worshipped and detested the figurehead equally and in torment, uttered a murmur of assent. And I think- Here, we're clearly meant to say this is not the literal figurehead. It's, you know, Pollings, who worshipped and detested Clarissa Oaks equally and in torment, you know. So, gosh, we're just really pounding this effect of Mrs. Oaks on the crew, on the crew, on the officers, in dividing the company, the thing that had resulted in this incredible brouhaha over the unmooring, and it made Jack so mad here. You know, we saw the depth of impact on Martin to be false and uncivil to his friends, to break his viola, to insult his patron and commander and, and you know, by avoiding the dinner invitation here. Wow. Wow. So I don't know.
0: It it's amazing how much malign influence we can stack up at the at the feet of Clarissa Oaks and and still believe that she has, you know, be, be, benign intentions and a, an entirely sympathetic character, but it her, her presence um, amongst all these men with the with the lack of self control and with the urges that they have, it it you know the the combination of the two is turning out still to be pretty explosive here. Right, her
1: mere presence and her desire to be liked by yeah.
0: everyone, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, what,
1: right. you know what the men have done with that. I tell you, this is this is something I hope we can go deeper and deeper with somebody with a little less testosterone than you and I. That
0: <laughs> yeah, we we might be a little a little bit too masculine to really get a perspective on this. Let's come back to that. Good point. Yeah,
1: that would be great.
0: Okay, so all the way through this church service, we get Jack's expression described as having leonine ferocity, like a lion. And Mike, this is the second time in the chapter we've had this animalization of uh, of Jack Aubrey as a lion. His lion like qualities in the grip of his righteous indignation, the the disgrace that's been brought upon Surprise, which you've as you've already said, Jack feels like he's married to. Jack's voice echoes these qualities as he's reading prayers and the sin-confessing psalm, and he kicks it all up a notch when he gets to the bit that he really sets his heart by, which is the Articles of War. He adds special emphasis to his reading of the Article of War that deals with quarreling with superior officers, with disobeying orders, and negligently performing duty. All of those things being, in the Articles, punishable by death. He also emphasizes the prohibitions against quarreling and disturbances and reminds them that any crimes not specifically mentioned shall be punished according to the laws and customs in such cases used at sea. And as he's glaring at the crew here, he's really projecting out to them. Don't you characters forget that I can kill all you. And the prediction that some of the crew are making that there might be some floggings, probably not very far from where Jack is really at here. And, as he dismisses the hands to their dinner and dismisses them for their grog, he paces the quarter deck. And the description that O'Brien gives us is great. As grave as a hanging judge. And judges are pretty grave in these books. you know. We remember Lord Ellenborough just a few books ago. And that's a real dark signal of just how ferocious Jack's mood is right now. Killick, Killick the low status lion tamer, creeps in here to tell him that the dinner guests are at single anchor, meaning they're they're ready to, to go for dinner. And he brightens at this. He puts on his finest jacket, gets himself back into socializing mode, host mode, and walks in to receive his guests. In come the guests. There is Mrs. Oakes, the scarlet woman, as the Sethians have taken to call her, in a modified version of that wedding dress. Tom Pullings is there in his captain's coat, Stephen in his surgeon's coat, and Oakes, who has no precedence, he's not a commissioned officer yet, but he has at least brilliantly polished his buttons
1: yeah and you would think you know we you know jack said what a drag he is we've you know established he's got no precedence no standing but it you know it turns out as they're sitting there oaks is the most cheerful of all the guests you know he's he's obviously been fortified with grog before his appearance here yeah. you know and when jack asked clarissa what he can bring her to drink she says that she'd be happiest if she can just share her husband's Madeira and and O'Brien writes in so wifely a manner that the married men, even Killick and his mate, smiled inwardly. And this is, you know, this this is that dear thing that our brides do for us. Like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, this guy's been in his cups just a little much. I'm gonna watch out. So I'm gonna share the wine with him. You know, <laughs> I'll hold that glass. Thank you. I love this. Well, when seated at the table, Oakes is diagonally across from Clarissa, so it's way too far to share wine. But still, he looks at her with a dog-like devotion, it writes, and her glances at him make him cry belay before Killick has half-filled his wine glass when Killick's standing over him. But even without the wine, Oakes's spirits are high, and Stephen suspects that Oakes and Clarissa have a new understanding, and the text says, Perhaps physically ratified. So you know, Oakes is a pretty happy guy
0: here. Yeah. Pretty yeah.
1: happy guy. You know,
0: can that possibly mean that it's all going to be okay? You know, can that possibly mean that she's decided that she's going to steer clear of all these guys and that she and he, Oakes and she, are going to be okay? I I don't know. I I think when I read that sentence, I hoped for a moment or two that that might be the case. But yeah, you know, this is too. this is a Patrick O'Brien book, and we're only on chapter seven, so. Let's just see here. Oakes's high mood contributes to him offering a riddle at the table. And Oakes asks the doctor, do you know what grows still longer the more it is cut? And things growing longer, Mike, I, I thought at first, maybe this is going to be some very, very unsavoury, off-colour reference here, yeah. but it's, it's a straightforward riddle. Um, they all guess incorrectly, and Oakes triumphantly and drunkly points out that the more you cut of a ditch... The longer it grows. And Mike, the, the, the growth is clearly on his mind here. What do you think? Right, right. It does
1: seem that way.
0: Right. Uh, and, and maybe growing jealousy as well. Hmm, let's see. Even Pullings, bless him, is pulled up from his guilt over the state of the ship and laughs aloud at this joke. He says it's one of the cleverest things he's ever heard, which I, which I find hard to believe. But then again, he's been sharing a gunroom and a and a dinner table with Jack Aubrey for most of his career. So the bar is pretty low in terms of quality of wit. Jack joins in on this. He's looking at Oaks with a new esteem. During the fish course, as Jack tells Mrs. Oaks about trade winds, Oaks tells Stephen a joke about a man who stopped smoking his pipe after he had lit it with a folded ballad sheet and now can't stop singing the ballad in his head the next morning. And all of this real kind of barroom, low-level kind of yeehaw humour going around the table here. Clarissa is looking across anxiously at her husband and Oakes tells another joke about a man growing his hair so long in hopes of it going to seed so he can help his bold friend. And each of these, with, with the metaphors about growth and the kind of haw-haw sense of humour, she must be worrying when is he going to break out into something that's really filthy and really discreditable. But anyhow, Jack loves all of this humour. He beats his hand on the table and calls for a glass of wine with Mr. Oakes. And Mike, this, this dinner's going really well here.
1: You know, it really is. It really is. Well, during the port course, as as Jack's explaining you know how the surprise is going to run when she picks up the trade, Clarissa speaks with unfeigned enthusiasm about her love of the ship leaning over, the spray coming along the side, and Jack gives her an approving look, realizes that actually it's probably more than just approving and quickly drops his eyes down so nobody will see the way he's looking at her. So, you know, this, uh, you know, I, I won't say, you know, bewitching this close to Halloween, but, uh, <laughs> you know, clearly, uh, and, and I think I just mentioned this a minute ago, we're you know, there's a there's a temptation to say that you know that Mrs. Oakes is the cause of all this, but I think a lot of these men are bewitching themselves with her desire just to be liked here. Yeah. You, know, we're, you know, we make ourselves do this thing, but clearly, very few of the men, Jack included, seemed untouched. No, no pun intended there. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, even Stephen, we remember originally saw this possibility, but seems to have mastered himself here. But after the Plum Duff. Oaks raises his glass and says so long as we may let us enjoy this breath for naught doth kill a man so soon as death Ooh. and again boy we may run out of pins and you know we need to stick a pin in that first cuz you know we're going to return to it next week and as you say the dinner's gone well Mr. And Mrs. Oaks have both come off very well in this dinner. Yeah, and definitely. and perhaps it's better that Martin wasn't there, you know, because it seemed, you know, they, uh, with Oaks being the happiest guy in the party to begin with now, the whole group seems to, you know, have had their spirits you know, raised. And Jack certainly has warmed to both of him, Mr. Oaks in particular. Yeah.
0: And Maybe as much as half of the ill will that we we're worried about at the beginning of the chapter might have been taken care of. I say might have. There's there's yeah. a whole other half, though, which is what's going on before the mast. What's going on with the foremast hands? The merriment in the captain's dinner isn't playing out on the forecastle, Despite the fact that it's one of those calm, beautiful evenings when the hands normally turn up to sing and dance, there is no singing and dancing. There's just the little girls playing. And later on, the quarter deck is even more somber with davidge who's had his chewing out from jack today but still is not on speaking terms with west is looking haggard middle-aged and wretched mrs oaks is there just like she always is sitting by the taffrail stephen goes and joins her she says that she's glad for his company is growing melancholy being alone which is strange she said all she had wanted in new south wales was solitude and she thinks It may be because she feels disliked, and she dislikes that, in turn, so much. She says that she can't think how she's offended Reed. She can't think how she's upset Sarah and Emily, who'd been such good friends of hers before. And Stephen, in in his way that he's had all the way through this chapter, just steers people away from uncomfortable stuff. He says, well, you know, the young are notoriously fickle. So we, we, we turn to Clarissa then to kind of wrap the chapter up here and reflect on what might be going on here with the men aboard.
1: Yeah. Clarissa reflects that a sea captain's life must be really lonely and says, you know, Jack's really, well, the captain is really lucky to have Stephen as, as his particular friend. And she asks if many of the captains take their wives or mistresses to sea. And Stephen explains that wives are uncommon and that everybody from the lords of the admiralty down to ordinary seamen look down on mistresses since they, as the text says, take away from an officer's character and authority. Well, she notes that not very many naval officers are famous for their chastity. And Stephen explains, not by land, yet at sea, a different set of rules comes into play. They're neither particularly logical nor consistent, but they are widely understood and observed. Really? Really? She asked, leaning forward with intense interest. And she sighed and shook her head, saying, but then, as you're aware, I know so little about men. Men in the ordinary sense, in ordinary everyday life, men by day— Rather than by night. End of chapter seven.
0: Mm, very telling little wrapping up of the chapter there by Clarissa Oakes. It's funny; she's we keep talking all the way through these stories about Stephen and Jack and the rate at which they they get a bit of self knowledge. And just for a minute here, Clarissa's getting a bit of a fresh perspective on herself, on what she is, and maybe the effect that she has, and what she knows about and what she doesn't. She's realizing that there is a world beyond what her experience of men has been. And uh, I I don't think it's her fault that she's had the the experience of the world that she's had, but she's starting to realize that there could be more to life.
1: Yeah. And I'm I'm like you, Ian, I I don't think it's her fault. And I I remember, you know, kind of this wave of empathy at the end going, you know, oh my gosh, for somebody to be in the position of only knowing men by night and as always, you know, O'Brien makes me reflect back going, well, what side of myself do I show? Have I shown? Yeah. And, you know, kind of, you know, what's been my trajectory over time about what's important and and those relationships. And gosh, you know, I, I keep, you know, as as I get to the end of these chapters, I think, oh, well, we saw so much more of, you know, the effect of Clarissa on the officers. and And I'm going, wait, wait, wait. You know, we got to. I got to change that wording here. It's certainly this. You know, she is, as Stephen said originally, the catalyst. The impact of this catalyst, but the reacting agents (laughs) are the man, man. yeah, yeah, absolutely, boy. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, like Jack's made earlier. It's so easy to get so caught in these chapters and to forget that just over the horizon here is you know we presume some action and and perhaps some serious action with this franklin on the horizon and all these northern chiefs and everything else and we got to get this ship pulled
0: together Right. And th- there's there's more to be pulled together than simply um, Oaks turning up and telling some jokes at the, uh, the gun room dinner. Um, there's there's all the stuff on the foc'sle to take care of. There's still this conflict between West and Davidge. Right. Stephen's been steering people away from touchy subjects and changing the subject and kind of doing this short-term protect and secure kind of conversation. But at some point, some of these people have got to have deeper conversations and we've got to resolve a few things here. Um, maybe, maybe there's hope of some kind for West and Davidge and their careers. Jack has given a pretty, pretty pessimistic signals about that so far. That maybe there's hope that the crew can pull together if Oaks as star is on the ascendant again. Maybe that means the Oak Apples can stop falling out with the rest of the crew. But, but I really don't know. I I like the fact that having had two or three chapters of really downbeat, dark, gloomy assessment of the way these men are all behaving around the character of Clarissa that she's starting to look ahead and think maybe there's, there's, there's a different place for me in the world and there's a different perspective, but I don't know if, I, you know, if it's too late, uh, is this whole ship and this whole ship's company on a trajectory for some kind of disaster. And yeah. as I've said before, it's only chapter seven.
1: <laughs> it, it is only chapter seven. And, and I'm reminded, you know, we're, we're kind of caught here in this, that there still is this whole impending thought of tons of punishment perhaps about to rain down so you know does that happen how is that going to play out what effect is that going to have um you know we've had so many times before you know this is this is not a mutiny like ship this is not those hard horse officers but right now jack seems to be in a little bit of a hard horse mood vis-a-vis some of the officers and the crew and it you know it sounded like this could be pretty far-reaching um Woo! A lot of action, a lot of punishment. Ian, I don't know. What do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien?
0: Oh, Mike, with all my heart. Whole a patrick o'brien podcast you're with mike and he's oh no you're not oh <laughs> <laughs> there you go sam yeah, our yeah, first yeah, one yeah, to pull yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the side i'm gonna start that again <clears throat> i wanted to know
1: what you were gonna say and his yes, right in, and his what
0: i've got it on a piece of paper here. insert name of host insert name of podcast it's all written down that's right